Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. My guest today is Stephen Bitteroff, the founder of Bomboden, one of the top importers of German wine in the USA. Stephen got his start working retail as the wine director of Crush in New York. And when he started Bomboden, it was focused on the Mosul. Now the company is synonymous with minimal intervention wine from lesser known regions like Baden, Franken, and the Obermosel. With the support of Wines of Germany, Stephen and I got the chance to talk in late July about his approach to importing. We'll jump right in. God, it's fucking wild that we're a year into this and still doing all these zoom things but yeah little by little yeah well, sure. steven how are you man i'm good yeah all's well as you said kind of busy but you know that's that's a good thing in in the world sometimes yeah you just got off hosting bomb Boden summer camp which sounds as exciting as i'm sure it was right <laughs> i mean bonfires s'mores spot lazies what's the what's the vibe exactly we usually do around the holidays a little, you know, meeting of the company and, you know, the, the company is at this point six people and that includes myself. So it's not, uh, this is not a massive corporate retreat, but <laughs> we usually do something around the holidays and it's just a time to, you know, that time to reflect upon the year that we just had and the year ahead and to, you know, that sort of thing. This was honestly just because of the situation kind of post pandemic and the, the mania of the world. This was just like, let's all get together and hang out. And I had, uh, when I first put it together, I was like, this will be a business opportunity to strategize and to build some spreadsheets and to look at numbers. And, you know, honestly, I thought about it and decided not to just because it this one, things are going perfectly fine. And what we do is not wildly complicated. And, and if people are buying the wines and drinking them and enjoying them, that's kind of that's all you really need to know. And a few spreadsheets are not going to tell you things that uh, you don't intuitively feel. So we dropped that and we just got together and hang as, as people, you know, a lot of this is, um, I don't know. It was, uh, yeah, just to be humans and to open wine and break bread together and to cook and to enjoy the world, you know, together. I mean, we are a diverse group geographically. And so, you know, one of the, we have from Minnesota and New Orleans and Chicago. And so, while we're on, you know, kind of all the, the digital technology that allows us to communicate, just being in the same room and not um, not emailing each other was 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 great. Yeah, shout yeah. out uh, Colin Moody, right? He's your newest exactly hire, right, right in yep. Chicago. Yep. Exactly right. Yeah, he's uh, our Chicago kind of representative, and uh, it was great. And you know, the one uh, strategy thing we did, I just had oceans of wine, and you know, because of uh, because of the logistics of wine and the complexities of our geographies you know even the new york sales people uh colin wagner is up in kingston and then carrie bernard is in brooklyn um so it's you know even those are a few hours away and so i'm often getting you know samples and all the wine that sort of is filtered through me and then i tell people what i thought of it mm. and of course then when the wine comes in and they finally taste it they tell me what they think of it but this was a good eye we literally went up there for two nights uh, rented a place in the catskills and had about nine cases of wine and that feels like the right ratio we yeah did not drink at all yeah, we tasted, you know, the uh, the Airbnb host was slightly worried. And I explained that, you know, <laughs> we're, we're frankly just like, at least I'm too old to really drink all that wine. So we did not. We're not going to drink all these. We're just going to take exactly. photos of them all. Yeah. You know? And we did a 2020 survey, which was really fun because this is something, you know, post-pandemic. By this point, I normally would have been to Germany two or three times and probably mm. have tasted five or 600 wines from the vintage and spent hours talking with people. And, you know, you get a a very kaleidoscopic view and you have a sense of where things are. 
and now it's, you know, I get sent samples and it's, I taste them alone in my kitchen after I put my kids to sleep. And it's, it's a very fractured experience. You know, I give the analogy, it's like watching the entire movie, but you're watching it in 15 second snippets and not necessarily chronologically, you know, but so is it's it helpful in some ways to like decontextualize the wines a little bit where you're tasting them in a place where you're not having all this other information kind of like interrupting you where you're getting other elements. I don't know. I, I can see the positives and the negatives to that. Yeah. For, my, for sure, you know, it's more of the blind tasting experience where it's, you, it's just you and the wine and what is that experience. And yeah, there, there are pluses to that, but I guess, I guess to put together the story of a narrative, perhaps it's, just a, perhaps it's just a selling tool, but I don't think so. It's, you know, we want to understand what the year was and what, if there is any signature. I guess the blind tasting is very good to know what Lauer's Rieslings tasted like in 2020 and why and why mm-hmm. Interstenberg tastes this way. But the big picture about what is the thread that kind of weaves its way through all the estates that, you know, and that is kind of the, the dorky fun we have and trying to, it's a fool's errand for sure, but we try to simplify a very complex story into something that we can kind of digest, just be probably because it just helps us sleep at night, you know, that we're, <laughs> <laughs> that we understand nature, that we are somehow, you know, there is a big a big message and we're deciphering it. So we did a big 2020 tasting with everyone and that was very cool. And we did it. To, to, I guess, my point, we did it by category. So we did kind of basic dries and then higher level dries and then fine herbs and then cabinets and spate mouse from all the producers that at least we had bottles from. So it was, you know, to sit one night for, you sat for about nine hours and quote unquote tasted. Um, what were the big takeaways from that? You know, that's, that's, that's the document I have to work on after this. Oh man. You know, it is, it's 2020 is heterogeneous, you know, but it's not, it, as opposed to 2019, which was, you know, you almost could just kind of pick a bottle and it's probably going to be pretty good. Not that there are any really duds, but, you know, they do show a little bit more variety. I think the dries were exceptional. I thought kind of across the board, they were just very, very, very good. Um, cabinets, I thought were very, very good. And then once you kind of get the fine herbs as well, uh, and then once you get above that, it's, you know, it's a little more, it's a little more varied probably. And it's honestly just not part of the show. The strengths for sure are the dries, the fine herbs, the cabinet. And then, and the truth is there just isn't much spate laser and there is almost no house laser. So it's not, you know. Why is that? Not, I just, am, I'm not as familiar with this past. Yeah, there were, there were rains kind of, the vintage turned a little bit uh, tricky, you know, mid-October-ish. And okay. so there was just a kind of close. So by the time, you know, Ripeness levels were certainly high, but it was a very dry vintage. So Botrytis, for the most part, was not a dry harvest, I guess, to begin. And so Botrytis wasn't a really issue. And then it just kind of went from dry, you know, perfect-esque weather to very wet. So it's mm. sort of like if you had things hanging, you you sort of lost it. So Wild stuff. In, in terms of weather right now in Germany, uh, to pivot a little bit, mm. I mean... Yeah. I know you don't have any producers in R, right? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I know that Meyer Nickel just got totally wiped out in Durnau. Uh, yep. it, it's it's pretty rough. Have you talked to any of your producers, how they're all doing? Yeah, um, of course, of course. Um, it's devastating. Yeah, it's kind of, and I think to be perfectly honest, we're still kind of coming to terms with, with what happened. You know, talking with, of course, I reach out to all my growers to sort of see, make sure they were okay. And then to make sure, you know, to kind of ask more broadly about what was happening there. Mm-hmm. In the Mosul, there was a good amount of flooding, as you've probably seen. I haven't mm-hmm. heard, certainly with my growers at least, um, there's no big issues, like no cellars were flooded, no, you know, no 
no real problems. Mm. Um, but obviously there was a lot of flooding. The Mosul does seem like it was, you know, it's a, it's a river community. And so they're not, f- the flooding is not, uh, is not that uncommon. Mm. You know, certainly the violence of what was in the, the R was, is a different thing. Um, but in the Mosul, you know, for instance, Clemens Bush, if anyone's ever been to his house, it is. Shout out uh, Clemens, it's right on the water. Yeah, it's right on the water. It's a 16th century structure. And the entire, you know, when you go into it, the bottom level, they don't really use. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. it's that's where the floodwaters go when they go and then they depart. And he had posted something, I think, that day about, you know, if anyone wants to pick up wine, you know, you have to kind mm-hmm. of take your bow over. And not this is not to belittle the very real like damage and pain and troubles that people are going through but i don't think it was structural and i don't think there was any loss of life and what's happening in the r is that is the thing that everyone's still kind of coming to terms with because i think it's people are like oh it was really bad uh and it seems to be really bad and potentially really bad you know all caps underlined bold i have this thing called reason fire another uh kind of company that runs and does this you know big event every year and so i have been in touch i've been a little busy just because of summer camp and a few other things so i'm a little running behind but I've been in touch with the VDP um, and through Riesling Fire, we will this week, which is, you know, the kind of last week of July, we'll start posting things to make, uh, to make it easier for people to send donations. Cause I think at the, to begin with, they only had an international wiring address, which is mm-hmm. something that not, you know, not everyone is that familiar with or comfortable with. So we're going to, we have a Venmo now account set up. So we're going to try and make donations possible. And then through Riesling Fire, we'll, um, have a little bit of some charity stuff just to raise awareness and raise money because it's not it's not a good situation. Certainly, and by people, the time yeah. this episode goes live, we'll have there'll be a link I'm sure that I can okay, include perfect. in the in yep. the episode bio and all that good stuff. So perfect, perfect. But it is it's a less a, it's a less a matter of uh, sellers being flooded than it is of houses being washed destroyed, away, yeah, including the sellers. Maybe that's an opportunity for us to talk real quick about Riesling Fire and what that is. I know you mentioned it, that it's a separate company. It's separate from Von Bowden. Mm-hmm. In New York, it's a big thing. But how would you describe what that is exactly? Yeah, it is. If people are familiar at all with the La Palais kind of concept, it is it is based on that, modeled off that unapologetically. Taking Shout that idea. Daniel John, sponsor the pod. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah. And I, before I started, I did, uh, I did email Jonas and just asked like, Hey man, do you mind if I just like, you know, use this idea? He was very, <laughs> ge- very generous and gracious to say, of course. And obviously his uh, New York manifestation and now San Francisco of La Palais is based on the mm-hmm. kind of harvest celebration in Burgundy itself. So the idea is basically just to get a lot of people who love German wines together and to, uh, to open great bottles. I think it's, uh, you know, the collector mentality that we, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have at some level, you know, that mm-hmm. doesn't mean you have cases of DRC, but that you treasure certain bottles and you kind of hold them back and want to share them with people who care. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of us gather all these wines. Um, and then, you know, on regular Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and it's just, you know, it's never, it never feels like the right moment. And so reason fire gives people, I hope the, the excuse to kind of open the, the wines they really want to share with people who really get it. Right. That's the other thing. It's yeah. like, you can have the rarest stamp in the world, but if you show your, you know, your aunt or your boyfriend or your cousin who doesn't know stamps, they're just like, eh. Yeah. And it's the same thing with wine, right? You pull out this bottle and you're like, this is, and people just look at you and say, think you, you know, you're an alien. So this is where all the aliens get together to party. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of how it works. So it is in, usually it is one about 150 to 200 person dinner. It is coarse. There's usually about 10 to 20 winemakers themselves. And we've had everyone from Egon Mueller to Keller to Prune to Clemens Busch, Los Lieser. The big names of Germany really have been incredibly generous with their time and their wines. And they bring crazy wines from their cellar. You bring crazy wines from your cellar. 
and we taste everything together in a like a festive kind of chaotic merry environment which is really 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 fun and when it comes to the food itself that you serve for that like there's so many great like Sichuan restaurants in Houston there's great mm-hmm. Vietnamese restaurants in Houston so those are like easy things that are done for pairings in Texas anyways when it comes to yeah. a lot of these Riesling bottlings but with these meals, do you do you have much of a theme each year with what you're doing for the pairings? Do you kind of let the winemakers as well as the psalms that are attending or working the event decide what what's kind of the culinary kind of trajectory for those sorts of things? Yeah, it's been, you know, because this is uh, this is kind of a thing I do in all my spare time and I don't have that mm-hmm. much spare time. Uh, <laughs> I am I would like to get to a point where in the future we kind of bring in chefs from Germany and Europe and kind of do a little bit more interactive things that way but you know the venue we've used for the last few years the Wyeth Hotel uh, they've had really great chefs who've been incredibly kind of creative and and participatory with kind of selecting it and really I sort of I let them drive just because uh, only a fool tries to drive like many Mm -hmm. many different cars at the same time it's just not uh, not advisable so I let them drive and I usually usually just kind of give them the outline because of the variety of wines and the stylistic diversity of Riesling, as people know from dry to very not dry. We do try to order it as much as possible because, you know, it's always a chance uh, that, uh, you know, people come to to an event like this with all these old TBAs and dry wines. And it's possible at the table that someone opens the TBA and the dry one at the same time. And it's, yeah. you know, that is not uh, the greatest experience. <laughs> so we do tell people that like, you know, throughout the night, let's start dry at each table. You run your own show. And if someone yeah. wants to open the TBA and drink it with the first course, like, so be it. You know, this is, you do, everyone does them. So that's fine. But in general, we try to have courses that pair the first ones pair with dry wines. And then we go fine hair, but then to the end, it's, you know, wine, courses that are, are expecting a little bit more unctuous kind of sweet wines. And, and we've had everything from the more kind of cliched cuisines to that interact very well with the sweeter wines. But we also try to, you know, keep it a little bit fresh and push the boundaries, not even push the boundaries, just expand that that kind of repertoire because dry Riesling and for instance, like oysters is psychotically good, right? A lot of that, yeah. a lot of the kind of sashimi and seafood and these things that are, have a sort of very fine glaze to them are do really well with with dry wines, with dry Rieslings and people are sometimes surprised. So we do try to, to play with it a little bit and not just be you know, the thing that people are kind of used to going on that a little bit more oysters with dry Riesling sashimi. Are there other things that you've noticed over the past couple of years, either with Riesling fire or just in terms of drinking these wines with lots of different food, anything else that you'd like to mention? Cause like you said, there are a lot of very tired pairings that that we talk about all the time, but, but what else kind of stands out to you? Uh, a very good friend of mine, people may know him, Robert Dentis, who goes uh, by Soil Pimp on Instagram. One of his favorite things is uh, pizza and Riesling. Ooh. Cabinet and Riesling, man. Well, what kind of pizza are we talking about? That's a big cabinet. I mean, kind of every, yeah, for sure. Like everything, really. And it's yeah. that's the fun is kind of playing to see what what kind of works and what doesn't. And, you know, not coming directly from a restaurant background. People always ask me, you know, about the, this question, right? The pairings question. And it's, you know, it's a little bit like, man, whatever you like kind of works. And I do think... If you're, you know, if you're dealing with five-star dining and you are, are, you're trying to, to weave a symphony, that is, that is a very noble quest. And it is the art of that is a very complex one and, you know, hats off to all the people doing that and doing it well. It is not an easy thing. 
uh, it only looks easy or tastes easy. Generally, the easier it looks, the harder it actually is. Exactly right. That is definitely true in winemaking as well. Um, but, uh, you know, for the, for the DIY, like day-to-day experience, sometimes you want it to be jarring. You know, sometimes you want the food and the wine to kind of like to smack each other and to create dissonance, right? Like something that is different in and of itself. And I think that's probably a little more the cabinet and pizza thing. Yeah. But I think interesting, you know, for the moment we're in now, the kind of late summer, corn is amazing with mm. reason, right? There is a yeah. sweetness to it. Any, you know, anything that is semi-sweetish, uh, not Swedish, but sweet-ish, <laughs> uh, tends to work well with delicate delicate wines and a lot of it the devils of the details but you know corn scallops you know are like again like that little that kind of sweetness to it but a lot of these late summer vegetables that do have a certain warmth and earthiness to them do very very well but a lot of it is just playing and having fun and not being too too limited because you know the the diversity of reasons it's also very hard to speak to specific uh pairings because all of them are so different you know and are we talking fine herbs are we talking drier cabinets are we talking off drier cabinets are we talking czar dry are we talking false dry you know the the details are are what make it complicated and also fun oh for sure um used a word earlier kaleidoscopic and i i think that's very true when it comes to these sorts of pairings like you can go in so many different directions and see so many cool things um tonight actually i'm having corn for dinner i'm having corn and lobster i'm I'm here on the cape right now working remotely and it's great because for this podcast episode we've got the elbling open um and we've also got the julian hart thousand liter open and i think both of these will be really good with the corn and the lobster should be a lot of fun i'm actually going to pour myself a little bit of both of these right now but um the the portfolio started as a mosul focused importer and Hart was one of your first producers you worked with, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, uh, there's kind of the original four, and he is he is number four of four. The the other three you had uh, Lauer in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was Lauer, uh, Weiser, Kunstler, Stein, and Julian Hart were the, the mm. first four. So it was a auspicious and very lucky start. And sure. and as you gradually started moving beyond Mosul into the other on the the other wine regions of Germany like how did you go about doing that what was kind of the organic development was it producers introducing you to other producers what was kind of the curation element towards building a broad portfolio that included all of Germany yeah well I guess I would say it to just to set the context it was never uh it was never well thought out <laughs> it was not <laughs> This was not a, a plan. This was a little bit of an emergency maneuvers. Lauer, Weiser, Kunstler, and Stein were imported by a company called Mosul, Mosul Wine Imports. Or Mosul, what was it called? Is that right? Mosul, Mosul Wine Merchants. Or... That's it. Thank you. Yeah. I'm mean, confusing with Mosul Fine Wines, which I've been reading mm-hmm. a lot, which is a great critical uh, resource. They do reviews and everything. So now my You were still at Crush when, when those wines exactly were Exactly right. right? <clears throat> exactly. And I was, when that company was started, uh, Mosul Wine Imports, uh, or wine merchants, I was one of the biggest customers, along with John Ritchie, who at the time was Chamber Street. So it was, I was at Crush, he was at Chamber Street. And we were, you know, I don't think I'm overstating it to say we probably were 80% of that import company's mm-hmm. business between the two of us. Uh, and I became throughout the course of about five years, very, very good friends with Florian Lauer, who's, who's a genius, who's incredibly kind and a good person, and who has kids about my age. And, you know, there were just a lot of kind of um, similarities in just in life, right? Other than yeah. he's a famous German winemaker. And that's, <laughs> you know, 
I'm not. But other than that, yeah, we so we got along. Is he big into and, art? Was he a painter in an earlier life? He, no, he was a he was a musician. He was a drummer. Okay, there you go. And so yeah, I mean, we you know, there's the art thing, and, and I guess maybe more, it's just the passionate dorky thing. You know, yeah. we were having kids about the same time. We're both fanatic about German wine, and also, you know, we I hope we can touch on this a little bit, but like there's a certain moral center. And I feel like, you know, when you start talking about wine and everything else, it's, you know, very quickly get into notes of mango versus lime and, you know, terroir and everything else. But the human element is something I've tried from the beginning to, to really weave into it because one, I think they are related. I think good people make very good wines, but as an importer, it's an incredibly important thing. I mean, it's, I will not import wine from anyone that I just don't like, right. That I don't. And again, it doesn't mean they're evil people, but that the, bond with importer and wine producer has to be it has to be it is for me a human thing i have to Mm -hmm. like them respect them want to spend time with them and even and i've said this before but i would rather import a mediocre wine from a great human than a great wine from someone less right the the wine and this is perhaps this is the you know the benefit of the importer trump vineyards is not going to be part of the portfolio it's not going to be part of the portfolio right and a lot of it is not good or bad i don't mean to couch this in terms of you know von boden is the righteous path and there is no other path that is not the message the message is just that i want to work with very small scale producers and i want it i want the business part of it to be less important and i want the wine part and the human part to be more important. And so, well, and I think you say that on your website, right? You talk about yeah. how importing is logistics, but that you want to operate on a human scale, I think is the term you use as human yeah. scale winemaking, yeah. which goes, I think, hand in hand with thoughtful work in the vineyard and the cellar, but, but it beyond kind of those elements, it's also, it's more than just a product. It's more than just what's physically in the bottle. It's exactly not like right. that element of blind tasting that we talked about earlier, right? Like there's so much more to it than that. Exactly. How do you, how do you balance that? I mean, because so much of running a importer is dealing with like those bureaucratic BS, you know, forms or whatever it is. Right. Um, and dealing with spreadsheets, like you talked about having to deal with, you know, I mean, how do you keep that North star of the human scale kind of like guiding you throughout all of this other noise going on? You know, I think it's, and that goes back to the earlier question too, in terms of how do you curate the book and everything else? And it's just a, something that's really important to you, you figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah. You know, ironically, probably the more, the more you focus on small growers and this kind of idiosyncratic way of doing business and way of kind of approaching things, it is more work, which is why, which is why the big companies historically have not done it. Right. It is much easier to register one estate with the FDA to do one set of colas or all the bureaucratic things that you have to do to bring a wine into the United States and sell it. And that includes compliance to get the wine into the US, mm-hmm. but it also includes compliance, which varies state to state, right? So to sell the wine in Texas or to sell the wine in California or Massachusetts, there's different regulations for every state. And within some states, there's different regulations per county. Mm-hmm. So in Tennessee, you know, you can sell in Nashville, but that doesn't mean you can sell in Memphis. There's a whole nother set of paperwork. How many states are you in? Just as a quick aside. I'm not hundred. <laughs> I'm not hundred percent sure. I think around 30, Okay, somewhere between go. 20. And that is honestly, at this point, we have a kind of a wait, a wait list. Uh, it's a great problem to have. That's great. It is That's a awesome. good problem, but it's also small scale. You know, I don't, this yeah. is not, uh, I don't mean to 
beat my chest and be like, you know, oh, that's in fact, it's like the opposite point. The, the bigger point is that like, we just, if you're working with small scale producers, the reality is you run out of wine and some of them, you know, I probably could browbeat to like, nah, just you know, make a little more, make 10, 20%, 50%, 60%, 70%. Can you double it? But that just that, that story never ends up well for anyone mm-hmm. that gives you a few years, <clears throat> five, 10 years of fulfilling market demand. And then then the growers are burnt out. The quality mm-hmm. is dipped down. You know, that, that is the thing is saying no is one of the most important things to do as an importer and as a winemaker and, and probably as a human, right? Just we can't experience and do everything all the time. And if you try to, you lose the kind of depth of experience, like saying no and knowing your boundaries. And that is, that's the 30 state thing, right? We just don't have the, the wine to go on. And, and, if we can find stuff, great. And if we can't, that's okay too. You know, it is. Did you learn that value of saying no from just prior experiences where you said yes when you shouldn't have? Because like you worked in customer service, you worked, you know, at Crush, this big retail wine space in New York. And so much of, you know, working, whether it's in restaurants or in retail is, you know, we were told for so long that the customer is always right. I think Miguel de Leon wrote a really great article in the past couple of months about how the customer isn't always right. No is an important part of your vocabulary. For you, how did you learn to set those boundaries? It came intuitively. And I think it just, you know, it's a it's sort of innate learning that comes from how you interact with the world and where you get satisfaction from, right? I mean, again, this yeah. is why I want to reemphasize it. This is not like, I think people speak and they say this is, this is my way and this is the this is the way and this is the best way and it becomes a kind of a simplistic sales pitch about you know why why you should buy this versus that and that is not the point you know this is one world view but it is i found i get more experience i get more pleasure from these more intimate quirky things right whether that is art whether that is music or whether that is wine or food or restaurants i tend i tend to like the smaller scale thing with a little more personality, right? I mean, I think yeah. when you when you increase scale and you increase efficiencies and you get larger, you tend to want consistency is what you're going for. And when you say small, you have a chance to be a little quirkier. And I often like the quirks, you know, I don't need or want often perfect wines. I enjoy perfect wines. The hundred point <laughs> wine is amazing. And the idea that that's even a conception is interesting, but I like that. But I also like the things that, are, you know, just, have a little bit of, they're, they're asymmetrical, they're smaller. And I found that that's what you get in smaller producers. And I like talking about the wines and I like talking about the vineyards and about all the bizarre reasons why it's different than something else. And that tends to come only with smaller scale producers. And I think that love for the kind of quirkier, more idiosyncratic elements really comes through in your writing. Anyone that's spent any time reading the bios or the write-ups on your producers on the Von Bowden website, I think you you have clearly developed a really amazing voice for speaking about wine in general, but specifically your producers. And for a lot of import companies, you're swimming in tech sheets, you know, there, there's tech sheets for every single wine. And they feel the need to give you all of this miscellaneous about the producer. And for you, I feel like every write-up perfectly encapsulates what you need to know about that winery. And there's always like, it's clear that you have a broad understanding of the wine industry. You'll reference Chocolina when you're talking about <laughs> Hild, right? And yeah. you don't typically see that on a German importer's like website or any importer's website, references to other regions of the wine world. And it's cool that you're able to, 
simultaneously put things in context and highlight those quirkier elements. I mean, it, it takes a real balancing act, I think, to write those so thoughtfully and, and it requires a lot of good writing skills. So props to you on that. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, the broader context behind all this is, is that, you know, I came to this kind of as a fluke, right? I feel like, and I'm, I assume, I don't know how most important it probably isn't one single narrative, but this really mm-hmm. was, you know, there were these four growers who were with, as we were talking earlier with uh, Mosul wine merchants and they, Mosul wine merchants decided not to continue on. They were doing fine, but it was just a business decision to kind of shut it down. And so it was my mission to kind of bring them in. So it was, you know, and I remember having conversations with Florian Lauer about, you know, listen, I know the wines incredibly well. I, through my retail work, I've been able to explain them and to contextualize them. In fact, we were the first people to buy them and to sell them at Crush. And so it was kind of like a proven record in being able to sell and explain what was at the time a fairly radical concept, right, of these wines that are neither dry nor off dry and this kind of middle ground that everyone had avoided like the third rail because, you know, the paradigm, the commercial selling machine was designed to sell dry and sweet and there was no space made for this middle ground. So it was a really radical thing he was doing. And I said, we had proven that we could do well with them. And so I had that, but I didn't, you know, and I remember telling him, I'm like, I have all this. The only thing is I have no idea how to import wine. But <laughs> other than that, man, I, I believe I can, I can do this really That's well. Funny. I don't have a company. I don't have a logo. I have no experience in this. I have no idea what it takes, but uh, I know the wine. And maybe that's, maybe that's <laughs> maybe that's really the underlying thing, right? Is all that other stuff you can figure out. And the yeah. small, working with small scale producers, the bureaucratic thing in a way is more important because you have to register 40 different producers who are all two or three hectares, as opposed to two producers who each have 200 hectares, right? It's, and if, it's, if you genuinely like give a shit, if you genuinely care about like these people that are making the wine, you go out of your way to make sure that you find a way through the bureaucracy and everything like that. So. Yeah, yeah, and you just do it, you know, it's same with cooking, right? It's, you can, you can microwave a tomato sauce, right? That you bought <laughs> out of a can and it, it will serve a function. And I've done that, it is what it is, right? At the same time, like if you spend all day making that sauce, and reducing it down and caramelizing the onions and it is better. And so, you know, it, there is, there is a grand philosophical message in all of this that we're all kind of learning as we, you know, as we come out of the technology, the, the obsessive worship of technology and efficiency and making things easier, better, faster, smarter, more ergonomic, more, you know, dishwasher safe. It's just, man, sometimes the, the shit that is the hardest and the most complicated and requires frankly, just the most labor is better. And that is, and it's a labor worth doing, right? And so with all this import stuff, man, like we just do it and we want to do it. And it makes no sense. The amount of horrible business decisions I've made <laughs> is like, is really not, not smart. I mean, right now we're bringing two producers from Salonstrut, which is this like very fascinating Northern region of Germany, kind of around Dresden and Leipzig. It is such a fascinating culture. The growers there are nothing short of heroic and the wines are expensive because they need to make money and i get that and so we are literally bringing in you know 10 cases 20 cases 30 cases of wines having all the bureaucratic labor for it and then because the wines are expensive basically making no money on them but like it's an (laughs) important part of the story and if i can afford to do that that's okay and you know and i get it like at certain point maybe i won't be able to keep doing these like these bizarre little things but i hope so you know and Right now, at least the balance of growers, there's other ones that you know, kind of help out. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the other thing, right? That is the human element is we all sort of help each other. This is, this is business. And we all 
we all have mortgages and expenses and the car needs a new transmission and you got to put Cheerios on the table for the kids. And that is, that is the reality of it. But on the other hand, like we also are woven together, right? I mean, they're producing the wines. I'm selling it without, without us helping each other. There is no, no cultural spread of this, right? And through the tariffs and through all the other hurdles that we've had to go through over the last 24 months, which have not been. Yeah, they've been brutal. I mean, everything I've heard at least is that the tariffs were harder than COVID was. I don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that probably is for the importers. Eh, they were harder in different ways. I'll put it yeah. that way. But, you know, the growers came together and certain growers could afford to give me discounts and I would discount it too. And then certain growers couldn't. And that was okay too. You know, there was no... I don't know. We're all different, right? There is no system to apply. There's no template to fit on everything that just requires more work and requires more talking with humans, which is probably something we should do more. This is why we pod. That's it, man. Yeah, I guess that's it. Um, You mentioned those two producers that you're bringing in from Saloon Street. Do you want to take a minute to let listeners know who they are, what they make, kind of what the vibe is there? Yeah, they're uh, Connie and Evie is one producer. Those wines are in the US and... (laughs) I snagged a bottle from Kingston Wine Co. Amazing. Um, okay, good. Yeah. That's, I always worry about this sort of stuff because <laughs> they they are technically in the U.S., but they are probably in about 10 stores in the U.S., and each store has about six bottles or now yeah. four to five. But And the other one is Comtesse Ligionnet, which we will bring in. It is coming in soon. It will be kind of arriving this fall. And they represent the two different areas of... Uh, of this northern region, one is Salunstrud, which is a little bit closer to Leipzig, and the other one is Dresden, Saxony, mm. um, and vineyards right around there. And these are two. You're far north, you know. These things are about an hour and a half south of Berlin. They're very, very far east. The, the mm. truth is, they're more east than they are north. They are, you know, kind of very close to the Polish border there. Uh, and it's they were part of East Germany, so it's a wild, wild history they've had in terms of a, of a medieval time period that was one of the grand German winemaking regions of, uh, of the north, then shrinking down to nearly zero hectares kind of toward the end of World War II, and then having it become East Germany and having the scant vineyards that remained basically abandoned and hundreds of hectares planted to you know the communist method, which was really wide rows. They had three meter yeah it's about three meter spaces between things so it's close to nine ten feet so the tractors could go through and it was the beginning of very intense commercial agriculture less of an intention of what you're planning and you know you'd have estates that had 400 hectares that made one wine yeah. usually muller turgau um, i just got back from armenia and it's the same thing like super wide rows yeah definitely saw a lot of that over there. yeah so and now you know post uh reunification now they're kind of coming to terms with how do you make quality wine and and both the producers I work with work with vineyards that somehow survived the, the communist era. And most mm-hmm. of them survived. Once again, we come back to humans. They survived mm-hmm. because there were people who, after their day jobs working in the commercial wineries, came home and tended lovingly a little garden and they made wine for themselves that way. And it was more work, but quality was better. And they just enjoyed it. And we know none of these names. We, you know, that's the, that is the shame and the kind of the thing to mourn about that is we don't know the people that kind of save these, but both the producers I work with work with these older vineyards and you make really interesting wines. You know, the one thing to talk about these two regions and not to go deep because it's a long story, but basically it's a shorter growing season. It's a really brutal winter. And so a lot of the longer uh, ripening grapes like Riesling almost don't stand a chance. So for whatever the microclimactic specificities, 
Saxony Dresden is a little warmer and a little longer. So you do see some Riesling there. In Salt it's almost no Riesling. There are one or two sites that are perfectly positioned that in good vintages can make some Riesling, but it is rarity. It's mm-hmm. Muller-Turgau land. Uh, it is Sylvaner land. And some of the Burgundian varietals do okay, like Weissburgunder and, um, and Pinot Grigio. Weissburgunder and the Grauburgunder as it were. Maybe we can quickly talk about some of those alternative varieties because so often the focus is on Riesling when we talk Germany, but you bring in some really amazing Portugiesers. Got a lot of Silvaner in the portfolio. We've got Vetter here uh, that I'm tasting right now. What's kind of the way in which you typically talk about a grape like Silvaner, for instance? You know, a lot of it is trying to contextualize it and provide it, provide a reference point to something people know, right? Yeah. And so that's it, a fool's game, but it does help at least begin the conversation. So with Silvaner, normally... My one-liner is it's like Chardonnay without fruit. <laughs> yeah, you know, insofar as it it can have a little bit broader shoulders, it can be a little richer, especially for people who are used to drinking Riesling. You know, it is a more textural, bigger wine in general, um, but it tends not to have that kind of warm, fuzzy, fruity mid palate that has made Chardonnay the kind of dominant world force it is. It tends to be a little more herbal, a little more soil toned, a little bit more perplexing a little more minimalist, a little more austere, a little more just quirky, right? And again, quirky and, and mainstream don't, don't tend, to, <laughs> tend to go together, yeah. which is why Sylvaner is not that. The other thing with Sylvaner is that it is like Riesling, a complex grape that can do a lot of different things. And that I think is also kind of confused the, the commercial message of it. You have a lot of Alsatian Sylvaners that can be oily and kind of opulent and have a little RS. And then you can have more of the German style, which would be these like more racy, austere, acid-driven wines. And that mm-hmm. is definitely, that's more the Sylvaner. That's more the, the better Sylvaner is this very linear, almost bracing, austere kind of style. And Sylvaner can do all that. And I tend to like, you know, the more racy or biting part, but they're all, they're all valid and kind of beautiful, beautiful expressions. I will say a huge part of the message of Von Boden is trying to embrace and contextualize and explain the greater diversity of German wine culture. Mm-hmm. It was a decision some people made in a back room in the 60s and 70s in terms of how to how to kind of sell German wine. And it was a good message and an honest message and a, a fair one to focus on Riesling. And I assume this is all conjecturing, of course, but it's all you know a way to differentiate from France and from Spain and Italy and these great world European wine cultures, right? It's like, all right, we kind of do Riesling and that's a way of kind of making space for ourselves. And that is perfectly true. But the other truth is that culture is never, ever, ever simple. And Riesling is probably in the great German wine book that hopefully I will someday write. Riesling will be a big part of the book, the first chapter or one third of the book, who knows, right? It's mildly important, but there are other chapters and there are other things that also have an incredible history in Germany and make incredible wines and should be should be embraced and given space. Not everything has to be Grand Cru Burgundy, right? And somehow, somehow the cold wine cultures of Italy and France seem able to embrace Montrachet, but also Muscadet. And somehow you can have Barolo, but also Dolcetto. And they're they have different uses. And everyone, yes, okay, the king of the king of wines is this, but man, sometimes you don't want the king, right? Sometimes you just need you need someone else. Uh, and give me a little court jester from time to time, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, we don't always want to listen to symphonies. Sometimes you just Mm -hmm. want a banjo, right? Sometimes you just want to have someone singing a cappello. Sometimes you just want a piano, whatever it is, right? It's the, the, the difference is what makes everything important. And so that with German wine, I felt like that story had been 
if not completely ignored, really pushed aside because it was just kind of getting in the way of the Riesling story. And that has been a huge, and again, it's not to knock Riesling off the pedestal because I started a company called Riesling Fire. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, most of my life has been about celebrating Riesling, but you can also have Elbowing, which is one of the great stories of, of German wine, right? This is one of the oldest indigenous grapes of Europe brought by the Romans, planted on Kimmeridgean limestone with this little tiny corner of it in the Mosul. And they make just incredibly fresh, vivacious wines, right? They are the kind of Muscadet of, of the Mosul. And they're, yes, like a TBA from Goldschropschen is a grander wine. But again, you want diversity, right? The red wine history in Germany, from Pinot Noir to Trollinger to Portugieser, they can be very serious wine, right? And again, there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that Riesling was such a force that a lot of the non-Riesling vineyards were ripped out to place Riesling in. So you lost a lot of this old vine history of Portugieser and of even Dornfelder that can make a good wine. And so, you know, a lot of these grapes that are not seen as important, they don't have, they're not planted in the Grand Cru vineyards like Riesling are. They're not tended to in the same way that Riesling are. They don't have the same vine age. And so, of course, they don't make as, as good a wine. But in the few instances, I've had very old vine Portugieser. There's a vineyard uh, that Andreas Durst, who is in the Northern Falls Farms, it is the 110-year-old vines planted on solid limestone. And the wine is... Um, just stunningly beautiful. It is a, it reminds me kind of of uh, like Alto Cumante. If people know like Ferrando Crema and those kind of mountain reds that are oh, yeah. brisk and herbal and kind of savory and very lithe, but also staining, you know, they're incredible wines. It's, I don't know what it is, 0.3 hectares, right? Mm-hmm. I can get 40 cases in a good year and that's it. That's all it exists, right? So that is, that's the challenge is they're out there. There's just not much. So you do have to find them. You have to do the research. You have to tell the story for 40 cases of wine, which is not always a very smart thing to do, right? It's, easy, it's easier to make one big shelf talker and bring in yeah. 8,000 cases of it. And then you just kind of sit back and, you know, count the money, I guess. I don't know. We're coming up on what, eight years, nine years that you've been doing this. The wine industry, I think, has changed a little bit, a fair bit. Hopefully, uh, wine has been democratized in a lot of ways. Very broadly, where do you see both your portfolio and German wine in general going over the next stretch of time, whether that's the next couple of years or the next like five to 10 years? The easy, wise answer I should probably just say is who the hell knows, man. You know, I would, <laughs> yeah. I, there's a few kind of broad, broad uh, brush strokes you can make that I think will be pretty safe. And hopefully, you know, in five or 10 years when this somehow pops up again and people are listening to it, I don't sound like a total idiot, um, <laughs> which is really the goal of any interview. I live my life by that. Just not, not trying to look like an idiot in public. You know? <laughs> exactly. I think uh, two big things. One uh, natural wine will become a, will become, will have sort of evolved and matured in, in Germany. You know, it's, it is fascinating to, to look at this culture, to look at German culture, which, you know, the Green Party is actually a strong political force and they were composting in the 70s, you know, and doing all these things that are only now sort of a- The original resonance. name for VDP was natural yeah, wine, right? They are the they are the, they are the first natural wine movement for sure. We just did yeah. this historical tasting, tasting wines for like post-war period and do a lot of nature wines, right? So mm-hmm. it was, ref- it was a, you know, every culture has its bugaboo and we seem to be sulfur obsessed and <laughs> I don't want to go too deep into that. And I think a lot of great reasons we are and a lot of reasons that are probably not quite as uh, important as people say they are, but whatever, every culture has its bugaboo. And the early one was capitalization. That was seen as the doctoring wine in a way that was, you know, inauthentic and not, uh, yeah. not the way to do it. And so there was an entire organization that all they did was 
group of growers got together not to capitalize wines. And those were nature wine, naturally pure wines. So there's this huge culture of kind of organic, you know, organic thought and environmental stewardship in Germany that I think is in a lot of ways light years ahead of certainly the US, uh, but a lot of other European countries. Yet they were slower to natural wine because, you know, because the traditions, especially in the Mosul and the the Rheingau were for these sweeter wines, at least in the export markets. And, you know, there's filtration that has to be done with wines like that. And so they were a little slower to that, but that is, that is changing. And I think we're going to see in the next five years, a, a veritable flood of uh, orange skin contact wines from, from Germany. And the truth of the matter is, you know, Von Boden is a company, myself personally, I want to have conversations with the growers about how they treat the people they work with and what they, how they view the world, right? This is not an unimportant thing when we talk about. A lot of it too is just like, who do you want to have dinner with, right? If someone yeah. is wildly politically different than I am, it's not that it's good or bad necessarily, but we probably aren't going to just get along in the human ways that we have to, to kind of do business yeah. together, right? Um, and so that part is important to me. How they work in the vineyard is incredibly important to me but I studied art history and I'm an importer <laughs> and I have never made wine and I'm not, yeah. I don't have the education to tell, nor frankly, I'm a pretty bombastic, you know, ignorant person, but even <laughs> I will not uh, tell, tell someone who's grown up in this, whose family has been doing this for 500 years, how they should do what they're doing. Right. This is yeah. something I have to trust that they're making the right choices. And again, when you get the small scale agriculture, they are the people spraying in the vineyards. Like they are the people who take their children there. They are the people who, who are going to pass this on to their children, right? Their imperative to keep these vineyards healthy uh, is much higher than mine is. And so I think it's a little bit virtue signaling for people to walk around and, you know, only drink organic wines. It's like, all right, let's talk about the bureaucracy of organic viticulture. Let's talk about the variants of, of vintages because some, some years it's incredibly easy to be organic. 18, 19, 20 were all pretty darn easy to be organic, even in Germany. There wasn't much rain, it was dry, and most of them are, right? And the, so it's a more complex thing is the only thing to say there. Um, so, so I'm very interested in all this, but ideologically, von Boden is, I'm, import, I'm very interested in the, the vineyard and how people are working and how they are as humans, but I like very classic wines and I like natural wines. I like acidity and I like clarity, and those are my kind of guiding forces. But whether it's zero sulfur skin contact or whether it's a filtered wine that has a little RS, I think they can both be authentic representations of a place and a time and they can be delicious, right? Yeah. I come from art history, as I said, and there was a huge, you know, a huge battle in the 20th century about what is the truth? Is it abstraction or is it figure representational painting? And everyone thought they were completely right at the time. And then history moves on and you can have both. Right. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if people in New York, there's summer, there was a retrospective of Alice Neal. This is going way off topic, but it's perhaps relevant in the thirties and forties and fifties, the avant-garde, the truth in painting was to not do figurative painting. It was to do abstractions. And the, the people who pushed this idea forward just said, you know, after cars and jet travel and the atomic bomb, like how do you continue painting the way that they painted before this? It's inauthentic to do that. Right. This is the real way to do it. And so you have the Jackson Pollocks and the de Koonings kind of throwing paint at the canvas and really expanding the, the vocabulary for painting. And that is valid. But anyone who painted representational, right, anyone who's not avant-garde, who was classic, was kind of disregarded. And, you know, you're an ingrate, you're more, you know, you're just not sophisticated, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're classic, and you're kind of more, you know, you're more conservative, you're more... A fuddy-duddy. 
yeah, you're not the the cutting edge youth movement, right? Mm-hmm. And that a lot at the time was true. And there was this painter named Alice Neal, who was a an incredible kind of humanist and was a figurative painter who painted immigrant children in um, in the Bronx and throughout New York and traveled around and was very involved in lots of communist and socialist movements, trying to just better the world for, for the working class, for immigrants and doing these really touching paintings of pregnant women, of men kind of splayed open and kind of shown, you know, doing nudes of men, right? And the woman, mm. women painting men at the time was a, was a revolutionary thing because it was the man who gazed at the woman and not vice versa. So yeah. she was, you know, overlooked and classified as conservative. And now you look at her paintings and they are revelatory and her movements and her positions seem so progressive. And so they speak to the moment in a, like a very deep, deep way. And I love de Kooning and Pollock. This is again, not there is one truth, but you look at them and oftentimes they look a little bit like Ikea posters. Yeah. Right. And the point again is it's not like one is better than the other, only that, that they all can exist and they all should exist. And if there are authentic expressions of classical wine, that's great. And if they're authentic expressions of authentic of natural wine, that is also very, very good. So I think we'll have both, but I think we're going to see in percentage terms, natural wine will be a very prominent force in, in Germany for the next kind of five, 10 years. And then we'll find it'll mature and we'll find a, we'll find a happy medium. Yeah. A happy balance. balance. Right. But there's going to be an incredible expansion of the vocabulary of German wine. Mosul wine will have more, more details and more references than it does now. And that's an awesome thing. And I'm, I'm, I feel like you've done a lot in terms of breaking down that monolith. I mean, you're always talking about the Obermosel, especially when it comes to Hild, you know, breaking down a lot of these little, like you've used the word before, like nooks and crannies of the Mosel. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I want to embrace it all. Right. I want to, I want to have a book and I want to have a wine cellar where I have Uli Stein who makes more traditional, you know, kind of classical, really, you know, blocking mallow and can be filtered slightly cutting wines. And I want to have Philip Lardot who makes more textural wines and Stefan Vetter who makes more contact wines and the Braun brothers in the Northern Faults who do a lot of zero sulfur winemaking. To me, it's, there is no one truth. And that I think is always not having an ideology is a really important thing. Follow, take each thing on the human terms and evaluate that person, that place and what they're doing, their practices, and then make your decisions. But to write off any one thing, whether it's classical or natural wine, I think is kind of foolish. And so I hope, I hope and trust that Germany is going to be a really exciting place. And I, I want to be there championing all those growers. So that I think will be one thing. And then the other thing is, uh, I think there is, there already is, to be honest, a huge trend uh, toward the collector class coming in and buying German wines now. And that is, you know, that that's is... Bull- that's a double-edged sword. I mean... Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm happy for it. You know, I'm happy for it because there's a lot of growers whose prices for their wines simply weren't sustainable. And they, you know, are kind of living more, they're living more hand to mouth than they should, because it is hard work and doing these, you know, we, people drive through the Mosul, look up the vineyards and they walk through them. And it's so dramatic and beautiful to work that nine to five day after day, week after week is incredible amounts of work and the growers just need more money. And that's how it goes. And if, you know, we're learning a lot in the restaurant business and the whole food industry about subsidizing low food costs. And it's the same in wine, right? It's like yeah. someone is doing a lot of hard work and they probably need to be making more money than they are. There's no That's, way to mechanize those vineyards in the Mosul. I mean, they're nope. yeah, <laughs> nope. not going to happen. Nope. And that's a really important thing. So that is a good thing. That is good. Then there's going to be just an inflation of wine prices and they're going to get harder and harder and harder to find. 
and that is just the reality of small production winemaking too. And I, you know, <clears throat> I'm not old, but I'm let's older-ish. Uh, <laughs> and I, when I first got into wine, Burgundy was something that, you know, that hurt a little bit to get a Grand Cru Burgundy, but you could do it 150 bucks, something like that. You know, it's, yeah. you buy a few a year and I probably shouldn't have, but I did. And it was great. It was obtainable. And now obviously a lot of the wines financially aren't obtainable. I don't think Germany, I don't think there's a few already, obviously that are going that way. And that will happen. That is what it is. The, the bigger issues are going to be kind of unobtainable in terms of just allocations, you know, mm. I mean, already, even with younger growers like Julian Hart, the prices are still reasonable. I think they're going to go up a good amount. It's more just, you know, I get 40 cases, 50 cases for the U S and that, you know, that's a few cases for each state. That's, it's not, it's not a lot of wine. And I, I'm sympathetic with the the consumer who's just frustrated, like I have to go to, you know, six different wine stores in 10 different states to get three bottles. Like that's annoying, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know what else to do other than, you know, Yulian is not going to start farming 25 hectares so that yeah. you know he can give more wine for people. It's just, he has a family and he wants to do the quality work he can and spend time with his kids. And, and that is a very human thing again. And I a hundred percent respect that. So the truth is then you keep looking, you know, you find other things, man, keep pushing on. That's, that's the beauty of wine too, right? It's Burgundy is amazing. And I'm so thrilled to open any one I can, but I also, you know, go discover the Obermosel. I'm, there's profound things happening in Eastern Europe. There's all these wine cultures that we're just scratching the surface on. So start looking, you know, start tasting. Mm -hmm. It's not, uh, the truth is not only in Burgundy and the truth is not only in Germany. We want you, know, you need everything. You need salt and pepper for dinner, right? I love it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. If people want to learn more about Von Boden, where can they find you on the World Wide Web? Yeah, for sure. It's just bomboden.com. So it's V-O-M as in Mary. Boden is B-O-D-E-N. It means from the soil. So that was always it. I thought it sounded cool. And I wanted a German name and I wanted something that wasn't just my name. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem like it's about me. It seems like it's probably- But your all selections didn't- uh... Steven's no, no, I just, it seems, it always seemed like a quirky thing that, you know, yeah. the, the story is the grower's story. That is yeah. not, uh, my, my part in all this is an important one, but it's not, it is not the one it's the grower. So bumbo.com. And there's a lot of writing. I do spend it probably more time than I should on the grower write-ups on the wine stuff. We have a news feed. You can sign up and we do very high class spam. So, you know, sign it's, great up spam. And... it's high quality. spam. <laughs> exactly. So we do spend a lot of time there. And we also, anyone who emails info at bombode.com gets a, you know, a response pretty quickly. That is not an, it is not an auto response. It is a, uh, a human responding to a human. So if you're looking for a wine, we'll do our best to kind of help you out. To, you know. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Of course. Anytime. It's good to see you, man. I'm glad, I'm glad everything is going well. And uh, I look forward to not only seeing you on my computer monitor, but like actually hanging out and breaking bread. It'd be, be nice. Catch you around. See ya. And that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass wherever you get your audio content. We're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, really anywhere you get your podcasts, uh, anywhere podcasts are listened to. <laughs> Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.